Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We are about a third of the way through our study on the book of Genesis. It's a big book. So we're trying to hit as many chapters per week as we can. Right now we are in Genesis 13 and 14. Uh, last week, Pastor Marshall went through ch- uh, chapters 12, and, uh, 11 and 12. And what we've been doing the last couple of weeks, we've been covering the time of when Noah departed the ark and his sons started to repopulate the earth. And we covered that last week, the Tower of Babel, and then also the call of Abram. And last week we saw how the call of Abram showed us that We must leave, as we are followers of Christ and we are followers of God, we must leave the world behind and walk by faith like Abram. But sometimes this walk, this thing that we're doing, will cause us to question God's provision and faithfulness. Therefore, our response to that, let me get off this little step here, is we must learn to rest in God's faithfulness and put deep roots into a life of faith that yields the fruit of obedience. So we're going to pick up kind of on that idea of obedience and faith and trust today as we study chapter 13. So we're going to turn to chapter 13, verse 1. The way we do it here is we're going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, and then we'll summarize everything at the end. So Genesis 13, 1 through 7. So Abram went from Egypt and he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where he had tent and had been in the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, So the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So Abram, if you remember from last week, if you've been following along at home, chapter 12 Abram is now has gone to Egypt and he gets cast out because he lies about his relationship with his wife. He calls him his sister. And the Pharaoh, God speaks to the Pharaoh and says, this is not a good situation for you, so you need to get them out of your land. And Abram has now returned to where he started. It says that there. He has basically made a giant U-turn. He's back in the land of Canaan. You also, last week, you listened to, or you listened to the podcast, you may remember Pastor Marshall talking about how when God called Abram, he told him to do two things, right? He said, leave your land and come follow me, go where I tell you to go. But he also told him to leave his kinsmen. And this recurring theme was, we're going to see something in the life of Abram, especially in his early years following God. It's like this idea of partial obedience. God would tell him to do something and he would kind of follow God's will. He'd do it to a point and then he would decide, yeah, that's not what I want to do in this situation. I'm going to do it my own way. And this is one of those moments, right? God said, leave your kinsmen And Abram translated that into, uh, well, I'm going to leave my kinsmen, but I'm also going to bring Lot along with me. And that decision will continue 
up until at the end of chapter 19, to be a thorn in Abram's side. And this is one of those instances where the different herds are fighting, they're bickering. It's just one of the first of many. I mean, they're just a few days into the journey, and already the kids in the back seat are arguing over who's going to sit next to the window, right? You got, you know, oh, one second. You got Johnny's sheep, right? They're, they're, they're touching Jill's cows and they're arguing, bickering back and forth. And Abram's in the front seat. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about here. And you're in the front seat, and you're a couple hours into the thing and you're already thinking, why did I bring Lot on this trip? This was a massive mistake. This is a nightmare. But Abram, right? I, I want to pick up something though that was also mentioned in these first eight chapter, verses. Both men are wealthy and have great possessions. But look at half, the half, first and second half of verse 4. Abram called upon the name of the Lord. I find it interesting, though, as we kept reading there, there was not a similar moment for Lot. Abram called on the name of the Lord, but Lot didn't. Abram, up to this point, has become now a man who seeks after the counsel of God. He seems, to, to the, at least at this point, have, he's learned from his mistakes in Egypt. God told him to do something. He screwed up. So now he's back in Canaan, and he seems to have gotten the point. Maybe listening to God when he tells me to do something, I'm finally going to listen and just do it. But at least from the text that we have here, and it's somewhat limited, we don't see a similar pattern in Lot. And that's going to become an important theme as we keep reading. So let's pick up in verse 8, and we're going to read through 13. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley as well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. In the direction of Zoar, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Abram makes the wise decision to separate from Lot because their herds were fighting amongst each other. And he didn't want to have strife between them. He didn't want long-lasting issues between family members. So he said, the best thing that we can do is split our herds. You take whatever side you want. I don't really care. He tells Lot again, choose whichever side. And no, but, but, but here, notice the growth in, in, in Abram. When he was in Egypt, his fear of the situation of being, Sarah being taken from him kept him from trusting the Lord. In the very same chapter of uh, chapter 12, just a few verses earlier, God had promised Abram that he would be a great nation. And that implies that God's going to take care of him. He's going to provide for him. So why lie about Sarah being his sister? Seemed pretty obvious. God says, do something. You're hearing the audible voice of the Lord. Seems like you should follow that. But it was fear and the lack of trust that led him to this. But also, he relied on his own intuition, his own feeling, his own way to fixing things to, to, to solve the problem. So in essence, Abram, he was a meddler. But now look, he's allowing Lot to choose 
any land that he wants. And at least there's a potential here. I guess this could happen. If Lot could choose the land that God had provided to Abram. He could have chosen Canaan. But that doesn't seem like it even like factored into Abram's mind here. He says, choose whichever side you want. And Lot chooses the Jordan Valley, which is east of the Jordan. But then look how Lot makes his decision. He lifts up his eyes and surveys the land. And this seems reasonable, right? If I'm going to pick land, I'm not a farmer. And if anybody's here, I probably would do the same thing. I have a garden, but it is not a farm, right? But I'm going to pick the land that looks the most fertile, that has water. And if I've just come out of Egypt and I've just seen the fertile lands of Egypt and I see land that looks just like it and somebody says, gives you the first option, yeah, I'm going to choose the one that's probably the most beneficial for me. It seems reasonable. I mean, why even at this point ask God for anything? He gave us eyes to see. He gives us what we consider discernment. And so we pick the land that seems the best beneficial for us. But again, look at the decision-making skill of Lot. Not only does he choose the land that looks from his own eyes to be the best, he also settles his tent near Sodom. And Moses, as he's writing the book of Genesis, he makes a point here to point that out to us when he says, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So there's something off on Lot's decision-making skills. He doesn't consult God. He chooses land that seems right in his own eyes. And now he's set up his tent in an area that is wicked and known around the region for having great sinners against the Lord. Now let's look at how that decision has played out in Abram's life. So let's read Genesis 13, and we're going to pick up in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from this place that you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that, it, that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which, is, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now here, God, for the second time in just two chapters, confirms his promise to Abram. Lot chose the Jordan Valley, but God was giving Abram Canaan, the promised land. And if you notice here, I, as I'm reading this, I can just, I just, maybe I'm just pulling my own emotion out of this, but I feel like there's a peace about Abram's decision. So much so, he has so much peace about where he's going to be and what land God is going to provide that he picks a great place by the oaks of Mamre. Like if I'm going to camp and pitch a tent under a, a bunch of oaks, sounds like a perfect place to go, in my opinion. But then he builds an altar to the Lord. So there's something about honoring God. There's something that he does after he makes the decision and God does this and he speaks to him. He shows thankfulness to the Lord. But do you see the two contrasts in the two men? Abram trusted God. Now he gets to walk in the land that he was promised. And he honors God by building an altar. Lot makes his choices, his own, by his own eyes and his own will. And he ends up in an area that is wicked. 
So what happens next is very predictable. We're only 13 chapters in the Bible, and if you keep reading, you find out just how predictable this can be. And I'm not going to read the next part. One, it's just got a lot of difficult names to say, and I'm not going to try to stand here and prove to you how I can say ancient Hebrew or Canaanite king names. There's even one that's so hard to say when I actually looked up the name. It's not even spelled how you would say it, and it's very difficult. But what happens is Lot settles in this area east of the Jordan, and there's a king there, and he rules most of the area. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they decide they're going to rebel against this king in the 13th year. So that kind of tells us that about 13 years have passed between when um, Abram and Lot have separated. So these kings decide to rebel against this other king. I call him King Cheddar because I can't say his name. Right, at least. I can say his name, but it's going to be brutal. So they rebel against this king, and it doesn't go well for them. They lose the battle. And during this conquest, during this battle... Because Lot has chosen the worst possible place to settle, he gets swept up and is taken prisoner, and all his possessions are taken with him. So what happens? Now Abram, again, a thorn in his side, has settled in Canaan. He's doing his own thing. He feels like he's doing the right thing, and he gets word that his nephew has been taken in this battle. So what does Abram have to do? All right, he has to wrestle up his own allies, He has to build an army out of his trained men, 318 of them, and he has to go rescue Lot. So there's a battle at night, and he rescues Lot and brings him home. And that's where we are right now. That's at the end of verse 13. So you may be asking, like, what is the application here? Like, what's the point of this? What can we draw from this? Well, primarily, if you read the book of Genesis and really all of the Old Testament— The story, and really all of mankind almost, the story here is an example of two men learning what it means to trust the Lord. You can either trust the Lord or you can run from his counsel. Abram knew the voice of the Lord. He had heard it. He had followed. He had learned. So he trusted that no matter which side, it didn't matter to him which side Lot chose because God had promised him and he believed God. He believed God would provide. So that was his moment of faith at least up to this point. He had learned from his mistakes. Lot, again, made his decision based on his own logic, his own eyes, and that poor decision has left him in a state of capture. We can all relate to this, I, I believe. I think, like, if I'm going to give myself, I'm going to look at these two men and see their situation, I probably more likely in my life at the age of ripe young age of 38 have looked more like Lot than I have Abram. How many times have we made a decision, we, maybe we even prayed about it, we thought it was right, and it ended up being like horribly wrong. It was the wrong thing to do. I feel like that's like our thing as humans. So what I want to do today is there's many ways you can trust the Lord. We can talk about this topic, but I want to kind of like focus in for the next few minutes about what it means to trust the Lord in our own decision-making process. So what this story should be doing, at least hopefully at this point, is forcing us to just take a step back, examine our lives, and look at our own process for how we make decisions. So the self-reflection part of this is when we are faced with a decision, if something is put in in front of us and we have to make a call about something, whether it's big or small, the question we need to ask ourselves is do we even consider God in the process? Do we stop and do what like Abram did and call upon the name of the Lord? Do we sit still for any amount of time and actually wait for an answer? 
Or like Lot, do we just raise up our eyes and survey the land based on our own understanding and then just make a call? So do we look more like Abram or Lot? Are we relying on our gut, this self-intuition that we have, and we've honed these skills over time? Or are we allowing God to actually direct our path? So we have the creator of everything. The one who created the heavens and the moon, the stars and everything on earth. He created every living being, all humans. He designed a perfectly designed universe that even gets off a tilt by just a little bit and the whole thing goes wacky. He designed that perfectly. And not only did he create everything, he created the concept or at least the idea of what faith, wisdom, and trust is. That's who's on our side. That's who we have as our, as our counselor. But do we even seek his advice? Do we even submit our lives in a way that mimics that behavior? Now, when we talk about this idea of trusting the Lord, I hear it all the time. It's like bumper stickers. Someone's going on in your life and someone just says, trust the Lord, he will provide. Amen, a billion times that. Name it, claim it, whatever you got to do. I believe it, it's, it's, it's so true, but sometimes it can be overused. Meaning that we don't really ever put it in contact. We never really get down a level and understand what the person's going through and understand that they're struggling right now. And when we just say, just trust the Lord and we just leave it at that, does that help the person at all? So we have to do a better job of understanding what that means. But the Bible is full of scripture that tells us to trust the Lord. It's like literally all of Psalms and Proverbs, right? But Proverbs, Proverbs 3 says this, trust in the Lord. This is like one of the bumper sticker verses. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, we all know this one, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for all those who love God, all things, word all there is important. He works together all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Psalms 9, 10 says this. And those who know your name, put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing. And here's Paul in Philippians 4, 5 through 6. He's mimicking Jesus's words here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. I love those three things there. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. First, we have to actually pray. That's kind of an important step. Secondly, we have to have this idea of supplication. Now, part of supplication is making an earnest request to God. Part of the word itself is like a begging behavior. You are not just standing there and saying, Lord, please help me today make this decision. There's a get on your knees in supplication and make your request be known to God. But part of those two elements there is this idea of thanksgiving. You have to do it with the thankful heart. Because why? It says this at the end. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, that word peace, what's it going to do? It's going to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So while we are told over and over again to trust the Lord, I understand that there are some likely here, some people maybe, that are struggling with that very thing. 
There's something in your life has happened and, you, and there's just a, a, a level of trust you just don't have. And I don't want to minimize that struggle. Because if you're sitting here today and you are wrestling with trusting the Lord, guess what? You are in fantastic company. Because everybody in this room at one point in our lives have struggled with trusting the Lord. Some of us had walked out of a season where we were struggling with this and we were going on our own and we're kind of doing our own thing and we've learned from that. And now we are fully submitted to the will of God. But even in those moments, this is a struggle. Because there's a, there's a in fact, I would say, trusting the Lord fully is man's greatest weakness. It's why Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden. They didn't trust God So they reached for wisdom and knowledge on their own. And then that becomes an example for every single time throughout the Bible and every single time you and I reach for anything that's not God's will. When we reach for wisdom, when we reach for knowledge, we are just mimicking Adam and Eve. It's Abram saying that Sarah was his sister. It's also Abram, which we're going to learn in future chapters, having a baby with Hagar because he didn't trust that the Lord was going to provide an heir through his wife. It's Moses when he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. It's the Israelite scouts when they go into the promised land and they're fearful of the giants. It's Israel when they're whining in the deserts because they don't have any food. It's Elijah running from Jezebel. It's the reason for the exiles and all the terrible kings of Israel. It's the disciples in the boat with the creator of everything and they're scared of the storm. And it's us when we reject or refuse to seek the counsel of God and choose to lean on our own understanding. And again, while we may claim that we acknowledge God in all that we do, do we really? Do our actions prove that? Maybe you've heard Pastor Marshall talk about this, how partial obedience is not actual obedience. Well, I believe the same can be applied to trust. Has anybody in here ever gone skydiving? No, so we're all sane people. Okay, good. I thought that, right? So they take you in a plane, right? Before you get in a plane, somebody hands you a parachute. Oh, okay. So you put me, put this in my back. I'm getting the back. And they take you up, I don't know how many thousand feet in the air. And then some person opens a door and tells you to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Like, it's not like it's, I mean, if the plane's going down, I'm jumping out, like, right? But this is a good airplane. It seems solid, but they, you're telling me to jump out of this thing. In that moment, when you're standing at the door and they slide that thing open, there is no such thing as partial trust. When you jump out, you are 100% trusting that the person who handed you a parachute packed it correctly, and it's not just their dirty clothes. So when you either jump or you sit down, those are your only two options in that scenario. I love this quote about trusting the Lord. It says this, In trusting God, there is peace, the peace of God that which passes all understanding. There is calm in the soul of him who trusts. There is no doubt or fear in trust, for doubt and fear are swallowed up in assurance, and assurance brings calmness and peace. You catch that? Fear and doubt cannot live in the same soul of the one who trusts God. And that peace, that one that guards our hearts and minds, it creates that peace that that passes all of our understandings. It brings assurance that he's working out all things, all of it, for those who love him. 
He's going to make your path straight. And he was not going to forsake those who seek after him. Abram called upon the name of the Lord and trusted that his promises were true. And there was peace in that decision and he inherited the promised land. But again, Lot used his own logic, his own reasoning. And he ended up in prison. In prison. So what does that tell us? Trusting the Lord is a process of dying to your will and submitting to his, no matter the circumstances or the potential outcome. Look, you're going to have a hard time, right? I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of myself. When we're making decisions, even if the outcome looks like failure, maybe the end result of that decision, that thing that you have to decide between, isn't great wealth and possessions. Do you remember, like, if you've read your Bible and you sat through probably enough Bible, like, you know, like Sunday school classes, do you remember the end of Lot's story? I'm jumping in here. Sorry, Pastor Marshall, when you get to chapter 19, hopefully I'm not stepping on toes here. But do you remember the end of Lot's story? He goes to Sodom. God decides he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because they're too evil. There's no hope there. So Lot and his family escapes. His wife can't handle, you know, the past, I guess. And she turns around and she turns into a pillar of salt. So Lot and his two daughters escape to a cave. And this really insane thing happens in the cave, right? The two daughters looking around, they don't see any men around, and they decide to get their father drunk. And one of the daughters sleeps with the father and gets pregnant. Whatever, man. Okay. The second second daughter, seeing that this was a good idea, decides to do it too. So there's two sons born out of that moment, that wicked moment. One son becomes the father of the Moabites. Now, who are the Moabites? We learn in the book of Ruth that Ruth is a Moabite. And who is Ruth? She's the great, 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 by whatever number it is, grandmother of who? Jesus. The other son becomes the father of the Ammonites. Now, the Ammonites are a little less known, but they played an important role in the history of Israel. Later on, during David's reign, they go to war with Israel, Ammonites do. And there's this moment when David, during the battle and the war, he looks out off his balcony and who does he see taking a bath? Bathsheba. He takes her because he's the king and he gets her pregnant. And out of that wickedness, he sends, David sends Uriah, David, Bathsheba's husband, to go fight on the front lines against that same nation and the Ammonites, and he dies. But out of that wicked relationship, that moment, what do you get? You get Solomon. And from Solomon, you get the covenants of David, the covenants of, of uh, Solomon. You get the temple. And out of that, you get all these crazy kings of Israel. You get them pushed off into the exile. But out of the exile, you get the Messiah language. And then they come back and there's 400 years of silence. But then out of that, what do you get? Jesus. And from Jesus, we get his life, death, and resurrection. So yeah, Yeah, God will work out anything that's intended for evil for good. So in your decision-making processes, don't look at everything as just white or black, right? God sees multicolored because he's working out all things for the good for those who love him. And all means all. It's not like a partial all. So don't think that every one of your decisions is this, it's the right decision or the wrong decision. Because God is working out everything. And our responsibility is that every turn and every decision is to try our best 
because we're not good at this as humans, to get in line with the will of God. And we do this by mimicking Abram and not Lot. We seek out the name of the Lord. We call upon it. We beg for his guidance, and then we rest. We do not meddle. And look, if you have to make a choice, like I get it, not every time something big is in front of us do you have like weeks and months to pray about it. Sometimes you just got to make a call. I mean, just, I mean, just make a decision. But don't trust your gut, trust God. And then if it was the wrong decision, be like Abram and not like Lot and learn from that decision. Don't keep repeating the same bad habits over and over and over again, because that's not growth or maturity. That's just immaturity. All right, so we're going to pick up in verse 17 here in Genesis chapter 14. After his turn from the defeat, and this is the weird guy's name, you actually say it, forgive me here, Kutterla Gamal. That's how you say that guy's name. And it doesn't, that, I don't see that anywhere here. So I call him King Cheddar. I love me. Okay, and so, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. I love how his quotes here. He was a priest of God most high. Not a priest. He was priest of the most high God. Singular. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Hard stop. That's crazy. I don't just meet people and they bless me and I give them money. That's just not how I operate. But that's weird. Okay, so verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were with me. Let an heir Eshol and Mamre take their share. So what we have here, Abram has defeated the kings in that little battle. He's rescued Lot. And now the priest of the Most High shows up. His name is Melchizedek, and he blesses Abram. This is an odd moment for a couple of reasons, and we'll go through them here. Number one, priest. Up until this point, there's really no discussions. We're only 13 chapters in. There's not really many discussions about priest at this point. So where does this guy come from? There's no law. There's no temple at this point. There's no even official practice for sacrifices. Up until this point, the people of God has just stopped, like Noah and Abram has just stopped and built an altar to God. So we don't get that official process for how to build a sacrifice to God until like halfway through Exodus. We got a long ways to go. We're just in the beginning of the story. Most theologians agree that Melchizedek, the story of Melchizedek was put there by Moses to create two priestly lines. One for the human priestly lines and one for Jesus. That's the heart behind Hebrews 7. We're not going to really have time for that today. So if you want to go back and read Hebrews 7, he breaks that down really well and tells you why there's two different lines. Because it shows that 
Jesus' priestly line is greater than the human one because in the human priest line, humans die. And he had to have a new priest. He had to have a new priest, you have to retrain, and there's all these issues. And then we even see in multiple moments of Israel's um, history, multiple priests needed to die because they weren't being faithful to God. But when you have one single priestly line through Jesus, there is no death and there is no sin. He's perfect. So we see that in Hebrews 7, that Jesus is in the order priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Many theologians also look at that text and see that Melchizedek could even be Jesus or at least a representation of Jesus. And this is why. Number one, you get Mel, that little statement there about he was priest of the Most High. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Now Salem in Hebrew means what? Peace. And many people, theologians, believe that Salem was just short for Jerusalem. So in in essence, Melchizedek was the king of peace. His name, Melchizedek, also literally means my king is righteousness. Also notice here that what did he bring with him? Bread and wine. What does that mimic? The Lord's Supper. There's a lot of cool little references there to Jesus and Melchizedek. That's why he's only really brought into this one little thing, and that's really it. And there's also this moment where Abram just gives Melchizedek 10% of his plunder. So I want to be careful here because talking about tithing is a little strange in money in church. But this, this moment is important because Abram was not prompted to do this. It just happened naturally. He gives him 10% of everything. And this moment here becomes the standard, at least from the biblical standard, for what we now call tithes and offerings. That word tithe, if you're hung up on like, what is 10%? Tithe means 10%. Can't really get around that. So there's also this strange moment here because up to this point, again, Abram is kind of the head, the the main character in the story. But it's Abram who gives the the, the 10%, his possessions, to Melchizedek. So there's this automatic submission that Abram was fine with when it came to this moment. So I want to stop for just a moment and talk about tithing. Yay, tithing on you know, Sundays, right? Talking about money and tithing in church is a touchy subject for many. I get it. And the problem or the question that many people have when it comes to the process of tithing, well, at least what we see here in Genesis chapter 14, is are we supposed to, as members of the new covenant, supposed to take this thing that's found in the Old Testament and apply it to us? I, my answer to that question is you're asking the wrong question. I would say we need to worry less about the 10% number and focus more on the posture of our heart when it comes to trusting the Lord with our finances. But I do want to talk a little bit about the 10% because I know people get hung up on it. Like if you're visiting here for the first time or you have not been here for one of, one of the things that we call our family update, once a quarter, Pastor Marshall stands up and goes through our giving, the money that you give to this church, and he kind of explains where that money is going or has, and is being used. So the way that we look at the 10% here in Red Hills is 10% of everything that you give goes towards missions. That's our tithing. So we use the 10%, again, found here in uh, Genesis 14 as the standard. It's the biblical standard. However, we don't look at it as this hard line in the sand and say that you have to follow this thing. It's our standard, not yours. What we ask is that if you are in a place where you can give financially, pick a number, pick a percent, whatever you got to do, and give faithfully. 
And over time, as your lands grow and your possessions get greater, work yourself up to that goal of 10%. But I don't want us to become like religious in that thinking where we find that 10% is just 10%. That's all I have to do. Jesus showed the disciples that the Pharisees who gave 10% out of arrogance and pride were despicable. But the poor woman who gave the penny, which was really all that she had, showed the true heart of a giver. He also had this interaction with the rich young ruler who came to him and said, what must I do to be saved? And what did Jesus respond with? He knew he had great possessions. So he said, sell everything and follow me. So if you really want to get down to like the brass tacks of Jesus and giving, 10% is an us issue. It's our holding on to our, our possessions and we don't want to give it up. And Jesus used those two moments, one of the poor and one of the rich, to examine our hearts and to show us where our priorities really are kind of settled in. And if you really want to get down to this, if you want to talk about the biblical standard from a Jesus perspective when it comes to giving, 10% is a discount. So think about that one. And I don't want to use this time for this body of believers to talk too much about tithing because I can tell you right now, Marshall and I, are, our minds are blown at the faithfulness of this body when it comes to tithing. So much so that there are many Sundays where we even forget to talk about it. The box is empty, but y'all still give. Give out of the joyfulness of your own heart. So I don't want to sit here and feel like I have to pry and talk and pull money out of you. That's not the point of this. The majority of this church give faithfully, but I understand and I believe that there's probably somebody right here in this room or listening to the podcast, whatever, who are struggling with trusting the Lord with your finances. And I don't want to take that lightly. It's no small thing for you to write that check or make that payment online to this church. We get it. That's a big moment and we don't want to just diminish it because it's, you know, oh, it's tithing. Because there's a chance that you've been at a church that abused finances. You saw how your money was being used incorrectly, at least in your own mind. And what that's done is created a trust issue in your own heart. (laughs) Trust me, I get that. I've been that person. But we have to be careful here not to use our past hurt as a reason not to grow and mature. We do that. We get hurt, and then it becomes part of our identity. And once something gets linked to your identity, your DNA, you know how hard it is to extract parts of your DNA out of your body? It's incredibly difficult. So the first thing that I would ask if you are struggling with trusting the Lord with your finances is this. Do you have a trust issue with the church or do you just have trust issues? What things in your life have led you to a point where you're unwilling to give back to God what is already God's? Maybe you've convinced yourself, you've read the Bible, you've convinced yourself that tithing is no longer a necessary thing to do. But look at verse 19. It says, And he has blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Everything is already his. So what we have to be careful here is that we're not misplacing where the tithe goes to in the first place. This means when you tithe, you're not giving to Red Hills. 
You're giving to God what is already his. So the posture of our hearts should be that we are giving to God what is already his. And we're not giving to this body because we just love Red Hills. Because here's this problem. If we make a decision here at Red Hills from an administrator's perspective that you don't agree with, and you're giving to Red Hills because you love Red Hills and not because you love Jesus, there's going to be an issue there. And you're going to have something you're going to have to gut check your heart in. And so now we have something we got to talk about. But if ultimately you are trusting God and you're trusting in this leadership of this church and you give to them, then there's not an issue. Because you're giving to God what is already God's. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm sitting here trying to give you, get you to give more. That's not the point. The heart of a giver is joyfulness. And that's where our, our, our posture of our heart should be. And I get it. There's been corruption in the church, right? And many of us have left churches for really good reasons. But if that pattern of you leaving churches because of trust issues just keeps happening, it's going to keep happening until you deal with that trust issue. And part of what we look at at Red Hills as part of our tithe and offering is also your time and talents and resources. The early church didn't just give of their money. They came together and they gave of their times and their talents and their resources. They pulled what they had together for the greater part of the community. So if you're a joyful giver, you may be saying, I, I already tithe 10%, so I'm good. But the question that you need to ask yourself is, does it stop there? Are you just checking off boxes? I'm not asking you to give 12% or 15%. I'm asking you to check your own heart and just make sure that we're not just saying, well, I give 10% and that's all I have to give. I'm good. I'm, my responsibility is clear. God, I was pleased with me and that's all I have to give. But think back to that rich young ruler. If he would have been the busy young ruler, the conversation between him and Jesus would have been completely different. Jesus would have said, quit your job, quit all your extracurricular activities and come follow me. And you may say, that's not what he would have done. Yes, he would have. Because he told the disciple who came to him and said, hey, my father's dead, I got to go. And he said, let the dead bury the dead, follow me. When he came in, he saw the disciples fishing. He said, drop your nets, quit your job and follow me. He told the crowd that to love him means you have to hate your brother, your sister, your mother, your father. Now, I don't think that Jesus was being literal there, but his point remains. To be a follower of Jesus means that everything else in our life gets put to the side and he becomes the king of our hearts. So what we have to do is raise the spiritual bar in our own lives and ask ourselves, what can I give? And it gets weird here, I get it, because it feels like I'm pressuring to give more and sacrifice more, but I don't mean to Red Hills. Please understand me. I'm not asking you to give up all of your time. That's not what I'm doing here. I don't want this to sound like I'm just saying, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Money, please. I'm not, I'm not doing that, right? What I'm saying is, yes, I want you to give more and sacrifice more, but not to Red Hills. Our responsibilities as believers in this world is to constantly examine our hearts to see if we're doing just enough to get by or are we faithfully serving Jesus joyfully. For some of us, that means we have to reevaluate our priorities. Where is our time being spent? We give faithfully financially, but our time is something that we hold 
and we covet. Look at the example of Abram. He gave 10% without prompting, pulling, or any convincing. I understand letting go is hard. Look, I like my time. Think about it this way. There's 168 hours in a week. 168 hours. How many of those hours do we actually spend serving God and others? You're going to have a hard time convincing me using this that our call as Christians is to spend more on our time on ourselves than others. Because I get, I love my time. I love spending time with my family. I love spending time with my wife and kids. I love fishing. Man, I love fishing these days. I love camping. I love the me time. And I'm not standing here asking you to give all your free time to God. What I'm saying is, and what I think the Spirit is asking, is for us to examine our hearts. Where are our priorities with our time and resources? Where is our focus? Where is that big thing there? Now look, I understand giving up is hard. Letting go is hard. Allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you and examine you and challenge us. All of this is so hard because we hold these things so close. And that trust issue, that thing that's preventing you from giving more, whether it be financially or your time, talents, or resources, remember, it's already God's. But that thing, it could be really, really deep down in your deepest level of your heart. It could be linked to your childhood. That trust issue could be linked to how your parents treated you. It could be linked to like how a spouse treated you. Abuse. Maybe you were abused. These are no small things. Maybe a church abused you and the leadership of that church sucked every little thing, the very life out of you. And now you've put up hands and walls and say, I I can't give more. I can't do it. I can't trust you because I think you're going to hurt me. I'm closing here, I promise. Trusting the Lord, whether it be in your decision makings or your finances, is not blind faith. Trusting God is finding peace in the middle of the storm. It's letting go. And that's what we have in Jesus. It's that peace. It's freedom. Jesus wants to take that pain. He wants to take your anxiety. He wants to remove that trust issue. He told us his yoke is heavy, but his burden is light. So all that junk we carry with us from past hurt and those trust issues— Like the song says, let it go. Don't drag it with you everywhere you go. Don't carry it like a badge of honor, like you're something special because you were hurt by a church or some pastor. Why are you carrying it? My wife said this to me yesterday. I thought it was really cool, so I threw it in here. If it's not helping you, it's hurting. You have to let it go. So Jesus wants to get down to our bones, like inside of our bones and marrow and extract that pain like a surgeon. He wants to remove those trust issues so that you'll have peace and calmness deep down in your soul. And look, as much as we probably would like for him to do this, he cannot change your past. But if you will let him, he will use your past like he used Lot to form your future and future generations to come after you. For Abram, it didn't matter. In his mind, it didn't matter which side Lot chose because he trusted that God was going to give him the land. It didn't matter. At the very end of chapter 14, we see how far Abram has come in just a few 
um, short chapters. He's not even willing to accept anything from the king of Sodom, Sodom because he doesn't want anybody to think that God wasn't the provider of everything. That's how far Abram had come. And yeah, when we're going to keep reading, we're going to see where Abram struggled. He went through some stuff. It wasn't always easy for him. But in the end, what we will learn as we continue reading in future weeks is that God, and if you read the entire Bible, you'll see this is basically the main theme of the entire Word of God, is that God is faithful. No matter what you've been through, no matter your circumstances, no matter what lays before you, what the land looks like, God is faithful. So in that, rest, be still, and have peace. Amen? Amen. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.